I am such a bozo. I am such a sucker. I am a loser because I fell for something that I explicitly said I wasn't going to fall for. On, uh, on Monday, we're talking about baseball coming back. And I said, I'm not going to fall for it. It seems like every week we're baited with a news story or we're baited with a tweet about how this is it. Baseball's coming back. This is it. The NBA's coming back. And we've been beaten over the skull with those tweets and those news stories for weeks. And I said, I'm not falling for it anymore. But earlier this week, Major League Baseball rolls out a proposal. It's going to go to the union. They're going to have a meeting. And I'm like, here we go. We're going to have news in a couple of days. I said I wasn't going to fall for the hype. And I literally fell for the hype. I was expecting some news yesterday after Major League Baseball met with the Players Union and with their representation and some agents and some consultants. I said, we're getting news yesterday. And I was had David Gasper on from reviewing the brew to talk brewers and talk baseball. I said, we're going to have some juicy news to talk about. I'm such a sucker. Nothing's going to happen for the next couple of days, at least. I hope that we're moving towards getting baseball back. And these meetings are legit and this plan is legit. But to think that it's going to happen in a day or two, which is what I thought yesterday. I'm a bozo. And I fell for it. I said I wasn't going to fall for it. I said explicitly that I'm not going to fall for the hype. And I fell for the hype. So we're patiently awaiting news. Uh, Major League Baseball met with representatives yesterday and covered a lot. They covered safety issues and health protocols for COVID-19. That's really all they covered. So they started yesterday. They began. We don't know much about what happened and they weren't set to meet again today, but sometime in the next couple of days, they're going to meet again. So we just hope that there's news. Any news is good news. We're learning more. We're gathering more information and hopefully approaching the start of baseball in July, which seems like a long ways away, but in the grand scheme of things is actually really, really close because I think a lot of us have made up our minds that there's not going to be sports again for a long time. July would be relatively close in the grand scope of the timeline of the coronavirus pandemic, at least in this country. My name is Grant Bills. This is the Wisco Sports Show. You're listening to WKTY. We're going to have fun today. We're not going to dwell on the coronavirus and on baseball. We're kind of, we're, we're going to, we're going to reassess. We're going to recap and we're going to, we're going to remember what's going on. We're going to reevaluate and then we're going to move on. I don't want to dwell on baseball and the coronavirus today. I want to talk Packers. Coming up at 515, we're going to start a weekly segment that we're going to do, well, at least until we have real games to talk about. We're calling it Packin' Time. And we're going to go back and look at a classic Packers game. And by classic, I mean like last 10 years because I want people to remember it. I don't want to go back to 1987. That's not what we're doing. We're actually going to go back to 2014. And we're going to recap, relive, and just bathe in the nostalgia of MVP Aaron Rodgers and the team that made the NFC Championship game and really should have made the Super Bowl. So we're going to go look back at that coming up at 5.15. We're going to spend a half hour on that, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the NBA right before 6 o'clock. But I want to start with baseball because I want to clarify a couple of things that I said yesterday and that I said again with Dave Carney on the morning show this morning for the G-Spot right after 8 o'clock. I want to clarify what I said. Yesterday and this morning, I said the players better be careful what they wish for. Because if they make a big enough stink about salary and about revenue sharing and a potential salary cap, if they make a big enough stink, we might not get baseball. And the ramifications from no baseball season, uh, physical ramifications, whether that might be financial or, or people losing jobs or businesses going out of business or... Uh, or, or PR, right? Something a little bit less tactile. Perception of the league. Fandom of the league. The ramifications of no season is way worse than any financial situation the players could find themselves in for a shortened season. 
And I said the players better be careful because they might get what they wish for. They have all the leverage in the world. They're going to wield it, but they better be careful because they might not like the path that their leverage takes them down. I want to clarify something. The players want to play baseball. I never once said that the players aren't interested in playing, and you shouldn't believe that the players don't want to play. I see a lot of people commenting, saying things like, well, if the, if the players don't want to play, they can stay home. The, the players want to play baseball, just like you want to go to work, just like I want to go to work. We all want to be working right now, and professional athletes are no different. Their livelihood and their careers are on the line as well. The players want to play. And don't get me wrong, you have every right to criticize baseball players for complaining about salary and complaining about their right to work in a time where everyone is unemployed and nobody is making enough money and we're all struggling to make ends meet. Yo, you, you have 100%. You have the right 100% to complain about and to look down on baseball players for being selfish and being needy and making this about money in a time where everybody is needy and needing money. That's fine. But what you can't do is accuse baseball players of not wanting to play. And by siding and saying baseball players don't want to play, you are siding with owners. All sports fans love to say, well, I don't, I don't cheer for owners. I cheer for the players. We all love to say that. But subconsciously, without even realizing it, we side with owners every day. That's how sports work. That's how the national anthem controversy went. That's how this is probably going to go. If the players prolong this dead spot and prevent baseball from coming back, whether for a few months or altogether, the players will be blamed. And we might not do it purposefully, but we're going to end up doing it. We have twisted this narrative. We've made it about, well, the players don't want to play. Yes, they do. They want to work. They want to make sure it's safe. And they want to make sure that it's financially viable for them to come back and risk their health and the health of the families and the, and the, the workers that it would take to make Major League Baseball possible. They want to make sure it's all good. They don't want to miss baseball. Don't make it about baseball players not wanting to work. That's not true. And by doing so, you're siding with owners. And I know all sports fans love to say, oh, I side with the players. Well, you might like to think that. It's self-conscious. It's entrenched in us. It's entrenched in us. I have no doubt a deal will get done because the alternative isn't acceptable. No baseball season this year is not an acceptable alternative because the players would lose out on the money they gained in the, the agreement that was made back in March, right? They would lose a year of their career and the average career is what, about five years and one year of that is a huge, huge part of a career. Careers are short. They're finite. And the players can't waste time. And they know that. The owners would make zero money. The players would make zero money. Hundreds of people would be furloughed either temporarily or permanently and lose their job. Team employees, which teams have already started plans on cutting back their pay, furloughing certain employees. It's already beginning. If there's no season, that would get worse. The free agent market next year would be completely dead and dry because owners don't have money to spend on players. The effects of not having a season would be much, much worse than any financial agreement the players could find themselves in in a shortened season this year. I have no doubt a deal will get done, but it's going to take a while. And you know how you can tell? The Players Association and Major League Baseball didn't even talk about salary yesterday. They didn't even cover it. They talked safety and protocol as it pertains to the virus. They didn't talk money, which is the number one sticking point. Something to remember about negotiations. You purposefully start farther apart than necessary. If you've ever sold something on the internet, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, you know this. If you've ever watched Pawn Stars, you know this. It's how the world 
works. I have a pair of shoes. They're worth 80 bucks new. I'm going to say, here, give me $90. And the person who's buying them will say, ah, uh, no, I'll give you 70. And then you agree on 80, which is the rifle price. It's how it works. The seller starts high, the buyer starts low, and you work towards the middle. And sometimes that process can take a while. And sometimes the negotiations can get really, really unpleasant. And that might happen in the case of baseball. But it's going to take a while. They didn't even touch finances yesterday. They didn't even touch it. And they are not even close to agreeing on financials yet. The current plan that they've reportedly put out, which wasn't covered yesterday, but reported a 50% revenue share, the players, that's a non-starter for them. Meaning that's like offering somebody $20 for something that's worth $100. they are so far apart right now. And that's how negotiations work. That ensures a reasonable place and a good compromise, but it takes time. And it takes a lot of BSing. And if you've ever, Pawn Stars is a great example. The owners of the shop are like, ah, they him and hon. They go, man, I got to make money too. Ah, I'm taking a bath as it is already. Negotiations take time. And they didn't even touch the most important topic yesterday. They didn't even present the financials. It's like having to butter your wife up before you ask to go fishing. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, so the guys want to take a weekend to go fishing or go golfing. All right. They want to go this weekend. It's Monday. Well, I'm not going to ask now. I'm going to ask Wednesday, and I'm going to spend all day today and all day tomorrow making sure I clean up the house, put my socks away. I'm going to wash my wife's car, make her dinner one night, and then on Wednesday, she'll be so buttered up, I'll finally ask. That's what baseball's doing with the players and with their representation. They want to wow them with their protocols that pertains to coronavirus and the safety of the players and their families and the employees. They want to get the wheels turning in the right direction before they actually talk about what, what matters, and that's financials. I have no doubt a deal will get done because the alternative is way, way worse than any sort of revenue split the players and the owners could figure out. The alternative of no season is a scorched earth, nobody wins solution. And neither side wants it. A deal will get done. It's just going to take a while. And the evidence we have the last two days indicates that, yeah, this might be a while. Hopefully we have baseball around July if it's possible and if everything goes the way we hope it could go. But this agreement might take a while. A couple weeks, a week, five days, I don't know. But I'm not refreshing Twitter during the commercial breaks to try to see if any news is broken, that's for sure. When we come back, let's have some fun. I love getting nostalgic. I love reminiscing. So what we're going to do, new segment, Pack in Time. We're going to look at an old Packer game, break down the storylines, what was going on with that Packers team at the time, and revel in some amazing individual and team performances. Today on the docket, Bears, Packers, Week 10, 2014. The final score, embarrassing. 55-14 Packers. Coming up next year on WKTY, we're going to go pack in time. Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. My name is Grant Bills. I'm your host. Hope you're doing well. Managing to get by and stay sane while we're all cooped up at home. I'm, ha- I'm, I'm so excited for today's show. I've been excited since I woke up this morning because we're going to unveil a new segment, which I don't do a lot. I, I don't like doing corny segments and I don't like naming things or coming up with sound effects. It's not it's not really my thing. I just kind of like to talk about sports and I like it to be informal, but I'm really excited for today's segment. It's called Pack in Time, and I'm hoping to do this once a week where I watch an old Packer game, and I'm talking like last 10 years. I'm not talking from the 70s. I'm talking last 10 years. I go and I watch an old Packer game and I take notes and I listen to the broadcast and I go back and I watch first take and 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 all the TV shows from the next day and I try to immerse myself in that team at that time. And we come and we talk about it on air and kind of revel in some great performances and some nostalgia and maybe just learn a thing or two about Packers teams of right now. 
So today's game, 2014, Week 10, Packers-Bears. Here's the scene. The Bears are 3-5. and five. They're coming off their bye week. They lost to the Patriots 51-23 before their bye. They were licking their wounds big time going into their off week. Now, 3-5 and five doesn't sound great, but this Bears team wasn't dead yet, not only because they had only played eight games, and we, we had only gotten to Week 10 by this game, but they lost to the Bills in overtime, and they lost by one score to the Panthers. If one of those games goes differently, the Bears are 4-4. Four and four. Compare that to the Packers, who were 5-3 and three at the time. This division race is still going on. The Bears are still in it. The Packers are 5-3. and three. They're coming off their bye week as well. And they got killed before the bye, 44-23, to the Saints. So the Packers-Bears, both in very similar situations, record only a game or two apart, both coming off an embarrassing loss before a bye. The Packers started 1-2 that year. Remember, that was the R-E-L-A-X year. They lost one and two, or they started one and two, and then they won four of five going into their bye week, which is where we get the Packers five and three, the Bears three and five, both coming off a bye week and an embarrassing loss. So without further ado, let's go pack in time. Monday Night Football, the NFL's oldest rivalry. Let's do it. I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. First of all, I will take any opportunity I have to bring Huey Lewis and make him a part of this show. Pack in time. Let's get nostalgic. Let's reminisce. 2014 was a year that I was drawn to when I'm, when I'm trying to think of old Packer games to watch. I was very drawn to 2014 because we used that year as a reference point for a lot of reasons. In my opinion, you may feel differently. This was the last time that the Packers put a championship worthy team around Aaron Rodgers in comparison to the to their conference in comparison to the NFC so 2014 in my mind is the last time that Aaron Rodgers had a good enough defense good enough group of weapons good enough offensive line defense to compete with his conference I know they made two NFC championship games since then but how'd they go they got killed by the Falcons killed by the Niners those teams were good they weren't as great and as all-around well-constructed as this team was in 2014 This is the last time the Packers had a championship roster. I also think this is the last time, and maybe we started to see a resurgence of it last year, but I think 2014 is the last concrete example of the Packers being elite and unbeatable at Lambeau Field. The Packers, in their last 34 games at Lambeau, where Aaron Rodgers played going into this game, they were 31-3. and Coming into this game, Rodgers had thrown 20 straight touchdowns at home since his last interception. This game, he made it 26. Spoiler alert, if you don't remember, all six of those touchdowns came in the first half. The Packers were scoring 37 points per game at home at the time. That was first in the NFL. They had dropped 31 on the Jets, 42 on the Vikings, 38 on the Panthers for three of their wins. Three of their five wins at home, and they were lights-out offensive performances. 2014, in my opinion, was the last time the Packers were unbeatable, unstoppable at Lambeau Field, and teams actually feared coming to play at the Frozen Tundra. Like I said, last year, that idea may have made a resurgence, and they had a playoff game at Lambeau Field, and it was awesome, and they had some new music and new lights. So maybe we're on the uptick. But 2014 was the last concrete example of an unbeatable, elite Packers home team. Now let's get into the game. Sometimes you can tell tell how a game is going to go. Like, just by the first couple of plays, you're like, oh, no. Packers fans probably 
Got that feeling in the NFC Championship game. Or in the earlier game this last year against the Niners. Like, just real early, you could tell. It was about to go south. It was about to go south. So the Bears return the first kickoff, and the returner gets stuffed inside the 15, which gets the crowd going louder, which gets the Packers hyped up even more, and then a block in the back call pulls them back to the six-yard line. You could tell the instant this game started, it felt like the route was on. And Chris Collinsworth, who was doing the game with Al Michaels for Sunday Night Football, Chris Collinsworth even knew it. He knew it because Chicago goes three and out, and then Green Bay gets the ball, and they're driving. It's 0-0 in the first quarter with about seven minutes left. And Chris Collinsworth says, at some point, the Bears have to believe they can stop the Packers offensively because they just haven't done it yet. It's scoreless. Like, the score is 0-0. There's like five minutes off the clock. And Chris Collinsworth is like, man, at some point, the Bears got to get a stop. In their first defensive series, Chris Collinsworth knew. He could feel it. I could feel it. I think if you rewatch this game, you would get that sense as well. And that theme continued into the second half, even though the game was well out of hand. It continued to have that feel because the the Bears get the opening kickoff. They go three and out, and then they have a punt blocked by Jarrett Boykin. And the punt didn't even go down as a punt block because Boykin hit the ball before O'Donnell's foot hit the ball. That's how poorly it was blocked. At every instance of this game, which, by the way, if you don't know the game I'm talking about, the Packers ended up winning 55-14. to Every corner of this game, it was rich with plays where you're like, yep, that's how tonight's going to go. Yep, the Packers are that much better. Yep, it's the Packers' night. And it was their night. They scored 42 first-half points, six first-half touchdowns from Aaron Rodgers. And that was the memorable part of this game. The score was, 40, score was 42 to nothing at halftime. And if you follow me on Twitter, at KeystrokerGrant, or maybe you follow us on uh, Facebook, at WKTY, I posted a couple of screenshots of this game, just... Just pictures that kind of summed up or little videos that summed up this game. Going to halftime is, is Al Michaels and Chris are signing off to go to the halftime break. The graphic pops up on the screen as they, they do the flyover shot of Lambeau Field. The graphic pops up. Packers, 42. Bears, 0. Six first half touchdowns from Aaron Rodgers. Six. You see a lot of blowouts in the NFL. You don't often see a halftime score 42 to 0. 42 to 0. That was the score. That's what's memorable about this game was Aaron Rodgers. His six first half touchdowns when is this? Brandon Bostick to go up 7 0. That was on fourth down. Then Andrew Corliss caught the next touchdown to make it two. Jordy Nelson had two touchdowns in the first half, 173 yards in the iconic get behind the corner, stay in front of the safety, catch the ball, then cut it back. That was a theme of 2014 for a 73 yard touchdown. And then a tiptoe in the end zone, back shoulder throw for a 40 yard touchdown. Eddie Lacy rumbled for a 56-yard touchdown on a screen, and Randall Cobb capped the half off with probably the best catch of the game, that one-handed go up and get it in the back of the end zone, almost like a basketball player getting a rebound to make it six and to make the score 42 to nothing. To put it into perspective, how much Aaron Rodgers dominated the Bears in 2014, and this game was an extension of that domination, only through halftime because Aaron Rodgers played one series in the second half. That was it. Through six quarters against the Bears in 2014, Aaron Rodgers completed 74% of his passes. He threw for 617 yards, 10 touchdowns, no interceptions, and a passer rating of 151. Dominance. And that was Aaron Rodgers' MVP year. And it was also a year that saw the Bears go 5-11 and and, and really give up on a coaching hire that went terribly wrong in Mark Tressman. That was the story from this game, and really the story of the year is Aaron Rodgers won MVP. I went into this game trying to pay attention to the offense because I was going to try to point out, okay, there's a McCarthy idea. 
right? That, that, there's Mike McCarthy's offense. And, and try to compare it to what Matt LaFleur and the Packers are doing now. But you know what's funny is McCarthy's offense, at least in this game, had a lot of creative stuff that Matt LaFleur wouldn't surprise me if he called some of this stuff. There are some creative wrinkles in there, and they actually don't completely neglect the running game. It helps to have peak Eddie Lacy in his rookie year. But the first offensive series for the Packers starts with three straight Eddie Lacy touches. Like, it was a, it was a focal point. They wanted to get the running game involved. Now, they went away from it, as they often did. A lot of the games in 2014, Eddie Lacy is great at the beginning, and then it becomes more about Aaron Rodgers in the passing game as the game goes along. I don't know if that's by design, if that's Aaron Rodgers being Aaron Rodgers, or if that's defenses just figuring out Eddie Lacy over the course of, you know, two or three quarters of football. But that's always the way these games trended. They'd start really heavy on Eddie Lacy, and then they'd slowly go away from him. This game was no different. And why would you keep running the football? Like, why would you run the football when you can win? And Aaron Rodgers threw six touchdowns in the first half. But they actually have a lot of ideas and things that they ran in this game offensively that I kind of was surprised by. I'm like, maybe I'm ripping on Mike McCarthy too much. They did a lot of no huddle, two tight end stuff. So they'd force the Bears into these big packages, and then they'd run no huddle to keep these big bodies out there, and they'd split their tight ends out wide to put the defense at a disadvantage. It was a theme you saw. You used to see it all the time with McCarthy. They kind of went away from it. And part of that was because they didn't have the tight ends to do it. But they ran a lot of no huddle. And consistently, they were snapping the ball with 10 to 15 seconds left on the play clock, which you never see now. There's always a second, maybe two on the play clock when that ball snapped. Nothing more. A stark difference from this game that I watched from 2014. They actually had some interesting setups in the backfield, too. Creative lineups. Where Aaron Rodgers would be under center, there was one lineup. It was like the I formation, but it was offset to the right. So Corliss was almost standing shoulder to shoulder with Rodgers off to the right with Eddie Lacy lined up behind him. And then they also ran the wishbone where they would line up Bostic and Corliss side by side next to Aaron Rodgers in the pistol or under center. And then they line up Eddie Lacy behind him for this weird pyramid wishbone formation. Maybe I was too hard on Mike McCarthy. If you were listening earlier this week, I'm like, Mike McCarthy's simple offense warped our minds. It warped the way we looked at football. But going back and watching this game, and part of it is the Bears' defense is terrible, which we'll talk about more coming up. But Mike McCarthy was maybe just a little bit more creative, at least at the time, than we gave him credit for. If you're just joining the show, we're going pack in time. I know it's a corny name, but it's it's sports radio, and we don't have any live sports. What do you want me to do? We're going pack in time. We're talking about Packers-Bears 2014. 55-14 was the final score. Aaron Rodgers was the memorable part of this game. But during the game... I don't think he was even the focal point or the main story. It was somebody else. It was Clay Matthews. Let's talk about that coming up next. Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. The Wisco Sports Show rolls on here on WKTY. My name is Grant Bills. I am your host. It's looking like it could get ugly in the state of Wisconsin. I don't know how this works politically. I'm glad I'm not on a politics show today. The Supreme Court striking down Governor Evers' stay-at-home order. I don't even know what that means. Does does that mean things reopen? Does that mean we can leave our house? Because we we have been leaving our house. Glad I'm not not working politics today. In sports radio, we're getting creative. Uh, We're in the middle of a new segment. I'm having a blast. I hope you're enjoying it. It's called Pack in Time, where we take a couple of minutes to look at an old Packer game to reminisce to drink up some nostalgia, and appreciate some really spectacular performances. Today, we're examining, we're reliving the Packers and the Bears' Week 10 Sunday night football matchup from 2014. 
Packers win 55-14. Aaron Rodgers throws six first-half touchdowns. And this game is significant for reasons other than the final score. It would be really fun to talk about just a Packers blowout every day on this show. Like, I, I could, like, all right, let's watch an old game where the Packers won 42-6. to There's enough examples. There's enough blowouts to, to do that. This game carries significance beyond the final score for a couple of reasons. Number one is Aaron Rodgers. Number two is number 52, Clay Matthews. I want to talk about him. First, I just want to mention a couple of guys from this game, and I, I was obviously taking notes and kind of planning exactly what, what we could talk about and 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 what's what topics are we can kind of chew on over this game. A couple of fun guys that I forgot about on, on both of these teams. Lance Briggs. Like, I remember him. Don't get me wrong. He's not an obsolete player, but I, I kind of forgot about that era of the Bears defense. Jared Allen. I didn't forget about Jared Allen. I forgot he was on the Bears. And I didn't forget about Mark Trestman. I'm sure Bears fans would like to forget about Mark Trestman. That's kind of a black hole of Bears football. And Kyle Fuller was a rookie in this game. So Kyle Fuller, who's now their number one corner in a really, really good corner, was a rookie in this game. And if you care about punters, Pat O'Donnell, this was his rookie game as well. He's turned into a pretty good punter for the Bears. So a couple of guys that have come around, a couple of guys that are long gone, and a couple of guys that I forgot about. Packers, I don't forget about Packer players as much, naturally because they're my team, unlike the Bears, but I kind of forgot about Jarrett Bush. I kind of miss when the Packers just had special teams guys, whether that was Jarrett Bush or Chris Banjo, fill in the blank. I forgot about Jarrett Bush. I forgot about Mike Neal, and I forgot about their entire defensive line. I'm like, who are these guys? I remember Latroy Guyon a little bit, and obviously Mike Daniels, we all remember. It was everybody else that I'm like, okay, I got to look these guys up. I also, I didn't forget, but I really appreciated hearing Chris Collinsworth pointing out that Julius Peppers played basketball. Like anytime. Anytime his arm is up in the air and deflects a pass, bam. Yeah, he played basketball. He's a basketball player, remember? And that's just a hilarious joke. But I, And we make that joke all the time. But I, had, I hadn't heard it in a while come from an actual announcer. So that was refreshing. And it, and it reminded me of this, like trying to name all these players and fun guys we forgot about from this game and from this era. It, it reminded me of a drinking game that I have with my friends. And especially in quarantine right now, if you're looking for ideas, this is a blast. Especially if you're a, a, a sports fan that has a good memory is you sit around and you drink, and you just take turns trying to remember weird, obsolete, forgotten-about athletes. It's most fun, I think, in baseball, because roster turnover in baseball is so it, it's so heavy every year, where so many players switch teams. So in baseball, we have a lot more players to talk about, because the roster turns over every year. We were specifically trying to name players off the 2000, 2017 Brewers. Or like Those are the forgotten years where Chris Carter was hitting bombs. And like last night, we came up with some gems. Kirk Neuenheis... Aaron Wilkerson, Nick Franklin. We had a blast trying to name some of these old players that were around for an era of Brewers baseball that wasn't entirely compelling, certainly wasn't competitive. It's a fun drinking game, and I got a little bit of that while watching this older, I guess six years old now, Packers-Bears game. Fun drinking game. Try it out sometime. We talked about Aaron Rodgers' six touchdowns and his performance, how those touchdowns came to be, how Mike McCarthy's offense, at least in 2014, which was Aaron Rodgers' last MVP year, it actually doesn't look all that dissimilar to what Matt LaFleur might be trying to do. Some interesting lineups in the backfield. They did lean on the running game in 2014, at least to start games, because Eddie Lacy was so good. They involved tight ends in the backfield, which is something I think we're going to see with Sternberger and DeGuara. A little bit more overlap than I expected. What I had completely forgotten about, and I felt really irresponsible when I realized how much I had exactly forgotten about Packers football from six years ago. Rodgers is the memorable story. But Clay Matthews was the focus in this game. And we tend to forget about Clay Matthews and exactly how good he was 
as late as 2014. We all we all think like, oh yeah, well he was at his best in 2010 and in 2011, which truthfully, yeah, he was. But to act like he didn't play meaningful football and didn't contribute after those years, it's just not true. And if you watch highlights from 2014, specifically this game, because it's so obvious, we man, we forget how good Clay Matthews was, especially in 2014. Because remember, this was the game they moved him inside. This is the game they moved him to inside linebacker after the bye. It's something they put in in the bye week, and it changed the course of their season. Changed the complete course of their season. And it probably was a bit of a response to what happened in the Bears in week four when the Bears put up 235 yards rushing on the Packers. The Packers still won because his team was really good, but they struggled to stop the run. So over the bye, they said, screw it. We're going to move Clay Matthews inside. And the Packers went on a tear. They only lost one more game the rest of the year, and it was to Buffalo. And if you know how I feel about losses like that, I would call that an AFC forget it game. I think the Chargers game was exactly that from last year. It's that random game that the Packers lose every year that you don't expect them to lose, but they do, and it's to an opponent that doesn't matter. In this case, it was the Bills. After the Packers moved Clay Matthews to inside linebacker over the Week 9 bye and then whooped the Bears on Sunday Night Football, they went on to beat the Eagles 53-20, to which I know Clay Matthews moving inside didn't have anything to do with a 53-burger a week after they dropped 55, but still is worth noting. They then beat the Vikings, the Patriots, the Falcons. They lost that game to the Bills. Then they beat the Buccaneers and then beat the Lions to go into the postseason. They only lost one game after their bye. And moving Clay Matthews inside was a big part of that. And all of those wins allowed the Packers to get that first round bye, get a home playoff game to host Dallas, and put themselves in a position to win a game they should have won in Seattle to make the Super Bowl. Clay Matthews' move and Dom Capers' vision to move him to inside backer was a big part of why that defense was successful and that team was well-rounded. It's not a coincidence that that was the last Packers team that I think all around was a Super Bowl-caliber roster. Chris Collinsworth, he will not shut up in this game about Clay Matthews moving inside. He will not stop talking about it. Chicago's first drive, which equates to the Packers' first defensive drive, the first time the Packers' defense is on the field, This drive took six plays. It went 28 yards, and it only took up three minutes and three seconds of time. And Chris Collinsworth found a way to mention Matthews moving to inside backer five separate times in three minutes of game time and six plays. Five. Five. This was the focal point of Chris Collinsworth as a color commentator coming in, and it should have been. He was all over it. But finding five ways to mention it in six plays is pretty remarkable. And it was warranted because Clay Matthews was that Good. I wrote down a couple of clips of Collinsworth, what he had to say. He said, it's a great way for Capers to get his best 11 players on the field. And then he said, they are strong at outside linebacker with Nick Perry, Mike Neal, and Julius Peppers, which at the time was true, but now looking back is utterly hilarious, in my opinion, because Nick Perry didn't turn out, neither did Mike Neal and Julius Peppers. Well, he just got old. Julius Peppers is great this year, and that comment holds true for this particular instance in 2014, but moving forward, the idea that that they were set at outside backer with Perry, Neal, and Peppers is a little bit laughable. At halftime, Chris Collinsworth said, you cannot have a better half of football than Clay Matthews just had. He was electric. He was everywhere. Everywhere. And Chris Collinsworth compared him to Troy Palomalu, which I think is the perfect comparison. They play different positions, and I think Palomalu will be remembered more as an all-time great. I don't know if Clay Matthews will make the Hall of Fame. It's not even something that's on my radar. I I would tend to doubt it, but maybe I'm wrong. Like I said, it's not something I've thought about. The way they're similar is the way that they play. Palomalu and Clay Matthews, in their primes, could just flip a switch. And it's almost like they would turn into a ball of pure energy. 
just a streak of energy. They ran different. They ran faster. They hit harder. It was such an intense style of play. And Matthews playing inside in 2014 allowed him to do everything, to drop into coverage, to stop the run, but also to blitz up the middle, which which put him in good matchups, but also sometimes rush from the outside. And he made the tackles for Chicago look terrible in this game. Terrible. And I think the Palomalu to Matthews connection, at least that year, was really, really accurate. Because it's almost like if you've ever played Sonic the Hedgehog, the video game, where Sonic goes in this mode where he just turns into a ball of energy. It's the exact same thing. And it's so much fun to watch. It was amazing. If you Go back and watch highlights from this game and watch what Clay Matthews did to the Bears. It was brilliant. It was beautiful. It was so much fun to watch. And, and it begs the question, is Clay Matthews, 2014 Clay Matthews, the best inside linebacker the Packers have had this decade? Would you rather have Clay Matthews inside than prime A.J. Hawk? I think it's a really I think it's a really fascinating question. And maybe that one, if I have a Packers nerd on, a real Packers nerd for a guest, might be something I have to ask because it's an interesting question. What really cracked me up was the the response to Al to, to Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth and then the media the next day. People were offended, offended at this game, at this wretched display of football from the Chicago Bears. Like they were embarrassed. It got to the point where Chris Collinsworth was thanking viewers for staying tuned in. And he joked before halftime, he's like, are we going to flex out of this game in the second half? Because that's how brutal it was. And the broadcast essentially ended as the teams ran together to shake hands. Chris Collinsworth said, man, I feel really bad for Mark Tressman. He's a great man. He's a great coach. But this thing is going south. And he was, he was exactly right. Because he did feel bad for him. That was an embarrassing game, especially after getting blown out the week before their bye. So they're giving up 50 points in two consecutive games with a bye to lick their wounds in the middle? Unreal. To kind of put a cap on this, I went and I found the episode of First Take that was aired the next day, Monday morning, where Skip Bayless, who was still on ESPN at the time, and Stephen A. Smith talked about this game. And I want to leave you with this, and I want to talk about the NBA coming up next. This is Stephen A. Smith reacting to this game. The blowout was so bad that... The reaction by journalists and commentators was almost unlike anything I have ever heard before. This is Stephen A. Smith. We'll be back in a little bit, a couple of minutes, to talk NBA and the possible comeback, which I don't think is going to happen, right here coming up next. The Wisco Sports Show rolls on here on WKTY. I'm not joking. I would fire everybody. (laughs) And I sincerely mean this. I would not have allowed Mark Tressman to leave the stadium last night as an employee. I would not have allowed him on a team plane. I would have made sure he had to pay his own flight home. A matter of fact, I think I would have done the same for the players. You make enough money, find a flight. Rent a car. National Avis hurts, they all do good deals. Final segment of the Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. I am your host, Grant Bills. Thanks for tuning in. You can check out the full show in podcast form, of course, when it's when it's done. So give me like 10 minutes to wrap up and then I'll get it posted. WKTYsports.com and on our mobile app. If you haven't downloaded our app, go ahead and do so. It's the best way to listen because I know a lot of our lives have been disrupted, right? We're not driving to work or we're not doing it at the same time. So you're probably not listening to us in the same way that you would normally be listening to. So make sure you have that app handy 
That way you never have to miss out. And if you do miss out, you can check out the podcast right there in the app uh, as well. We just wrapped up what I think, and I got to talk to some people because maybe I'm the only one, but I really enjoyed talking about an old Packer game. 2014 is such an awesome year because I loved that team in a way that I don't think I've loved a Packers team since last year. It was a team that was kind of inspiring and exciting, and you just felt that they had a certain energy. That year, you felt like, this is our year. And you can have a good team and not feel that way. I think a lot of people felt that way last year. I I didn't feel that way because last year's team really, I think, kind of captured my imagination and excitement as a Packer fan for the first time probably since 2014. But that's a really special team, and there's some iconic wins that year, and maybe we'll revisit it, uh, and and I hope to do Pack in Time, my new favorite segment, coming up next Wednesday. We'll pick a different game. Hopefully you enjoyed it as well. It's, It's something that I think could... Could really uh, give us a break from what's going on in our real world by just getting a little bit nostalgic. I, I want to talk about the NBA because it's a conversation I want to have more at length tomorrow. I kind of want to preview it before digging into it tomorrow because we've done football, baseball. We've done everything this week except for the NBA. And I want to be really clear. I don't think the NBA is going to come back. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think the NBA is going to return. And every day that goes by where we don't have something concrete, like baseball's got the wheels in motion. The NBA doesn't have anything in motion. They've done some conference calls and Zooms, and we've all been like, yeah, progress, exciting. But no, nothing's in motion yet. I said it yesterday. I said it again this morning. I don't think the NBA is going to come back. And Dave this morning, when I joined him on the WK2I Morning Show, he asked me if the, the player survey makes me feel any better. If you missed it, the NBA Players Association anonymously polled players, do you want to come back? Yes or no? And Dave's like, does that make you feel better? I'm like, no, absolutely not. I hate the idea of a multi-billion dollar organization sending out an anonymous survey to their hundreds of players. It would be like if our country was to go to war and Donald Trump or President Obama or President Bush send a letter to every American, check yes or no. That's not how you make decisions in times of crisis. And if Adam Silver feels like he needs to ask permission from his players, then he shouldn't be the commissioner. And props to the players for putting out a united front. Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports reported yesterday, and I'm sure other reporters had it, so if if Chris Haynes did not at first, I'm sorry. But he reported yesterday through Yahoo Sports that a conference call between some of the NBA's top players, Kevin Durant, Giannis, LeBron, Kawhi, Steph, Damian Lillard, Russell Westbrook, they all got together with Chris Paul and said, here's our stance, and they got a united front, which is fantastic because the NBA hasn't been doing that. The NBA hasn't had a united message or united front. Everybody, the agents, the players, the coaches, the GMs, the owners, the league, they're all saying different things, which isn't what you want in a time of crisis. And I give props to the players for getting together and creating a united front because motivations could be differing right now in the rank and file of the NBA. The top players, the ones on contending teams, of course want to come back, especially LeBron. Because his age is getting up there and he's only going to have so many more chances to win a title. And the Bucs want to restart it too because they don't know how much longer Giannis is going to be on the team. So there's plenty of incentive for certain teams to get back to play. But what about the ones that aren't in contention? They could start their offseason early and they wouldn't have to risk their health related to the virus or injury. But then also, if the season is canceled, that impacts the next CBA and everybody loses out on money. There's a lot of different motivations from a lot of different players who are in different positions, contending, not young, old, making money, not making anything. So I give props to the players for gathering and trying to get a united front. Yes, we want to play. Yes, we want to play. I commend the players 
right now is is a really tough scene for Adam Silver. It's a tough scene. Since Adam Silver became the commissioner in 2014, he really hasn't had to deal with too much. He had to deal with the China thing less than a year ago, but he also, in a sense, got bailed out because now nobody talks about that. We're all talking about coronavirus. So our short attention spans may have helped Adam Silver in that sense. Yes, now he has a bigger crisis, but nobody's ever going to think about China, at least in the, in, in, you know, in, in the near future. He had to deal with Donald Sterling, but that was a softball, in my opinion. You may feel differently, but that played right into Silver's brand. Adam Silver is the players commissioner. He listens to the players, not the billionaire owners. And, and, and the Donald Sterling situation was a slam dunk for him because he could say, I side with my players. You are racist. Sell the team. I'm going to fine you $2.5 million, which is the most I can fine you. And you're out of the league. You're banned from games forever. That was perfect. That allowed Adam Silver to bolster his brand, a unique brand of being the players commissioner unlike Roger Goodell. Adam Sterling is basically pitching a no-hitter right now. Basically. He hasn't made a misstep. He hasn't had to deal with anything too sticky. But right now, he appears to be crippled by fear and by empathy. And empathy isn't a bad thing, but it's not necessarily the defining trait in times of crisis with leadership. I can feel empathetic, but I'm not leading a sports league. I'm not leading the country. Goodell, Roger Goodell, say what you want, but through thick and thin, he has grown the value of his league, often with opposition from the players. With Thursday Night Football, with the the National Anthem crisis, he's grown the league's value. And sometimes, Roger Goodell has played the parent card, the because I said so card, because I'm the commissioner and I decide. And it's time for Adam Silver to do the same thing. And in times of crisis, we're okay with it. FDR is an amazing example. You know, FDR was president from 1933 to 1945. We forget about that. He was elected in 32. And in 1941, he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to continue being president because the Nazis are moving through Europe and we're declaring war. And because I said so, because we're at war and we were fine with it, or at least that's how we remember it, because it was a time of crisis and the rules change in a time of crisis. Adam Silver needs to change and he needs to play the because I said so card. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're going to do it. Get on board or you're going to stay at home and you're not going to get paid. It'll hurt his reputation with the players, but his league will be better for it and the fans will be better for it. We'll be back tomorrow. Talk to Radio Joes and Zola. We're going to talk Bucks, Brewers, everything. Back on the Wisco Sports Show tomorrow. Same time, same place. Talk to you then.